Namutasa Bhagavato Rato Sama Sambuddhasa Namutasa Bhagavato Rato Sama Sambuddhasa Namutasa Bhagavato Rato Sama Sambuddhasa Dang Damang Sangam Masami So we're coming to this, uh, this is the end of our rains retreat, this period of time when we uh, especially stay put much more and have a lot of time for meditation and uh, also for trying to strengthen our standards of conduct and how we go about doing things, protocols, procedures. And it's quite a... Um, be quite an intense time, and uh, essentially, you know, Sangha in Britain, it's pretty, it's a, quite a an intense situation for us, people living this life, because there's not a lot of uh, loose space to just kind of wander off into. If you live in an Asian country, you can more or less just put your bag on your back and wander off down the road and park under a tree or find an old ruined temple or something and somebody look after you and keep going, you know, and, and uh, that takes some of the pressure off that, that can occur when you're living in a within a, a confine, in a particular finite situation where somehow you get a sense of pressure building up. Same thing, same day, day after day, responsibilities, difficulties with other people, difficulties with your mind, difficulties with your body, and uh, nothing much to take it, you know, nothing much else to, to to look at apart from those things. And as you'll know, just uh, we've been sitting for a, just under an hour in meditation and probably for some of you that was quite difficult, you know, just physically holding your body up. <laughs> you try to challenge, isn't it? You know, holding a body up without a chair or and the pressure of the body on the floor, kind of, you know, and the, and the, you know what it takes to support the mind, to support some sense of oh comfortable, okay, restful, you know, workable state of mind without continuing feeling you're going to kind of tense up to withstand difficult pain or mental conflict or problems, you know. You know. So, uh, so this is actually, you know, a big, big thing to be doing. It doesn't look very impressive from the outside until you start trying to do it. <clears throat> and uh, this is uh, the kind of uh, the paradigm of the gone forth person, the monk or the nun. It doesn't really matter what your ordination is about, but basically, whether you're a bhikkhuni or a 
Samaneri or a Siddhartha or Bhikkhu or Anagarika, basically it's the same thing. <laughs> you know, whatever on the outside, the colours and you put on it, you're there having to meet your stuff, having to meet physical discomfort, having to meet physical ill health, having to meet conflict, having to meet unresolved issues in your mind, having to meet unresolved issues in other people's minds and being not having a lot of let you know uh, let out from that and it's up, up against it that experience um so you look at it you know people can make a big deal out of um vasas and ordinations and you know how high you are and the hierarchy or how important you are how great a teacher you are whatever but basically that's that's not the point basically is because we're here just to it's a stripping down really that one's undertaking Going forth is like a stripping down to, to some pretty raw nerve endings, you know, because it is the sense of renunciation is the kind of, you know, the letting go, the coming out of the comfort zones, letting go of the things we would normally lean on. In fact, we're not actually kind of sitting in armchairs. <laughs> you know, just that simple thing. This is the, this is the stand we sit here on these thin mats on the floor and actually a thin mat is a kind of little bit of a lift you know in the old days it wasn't any thin mats it was just the floor <laughs> and you've got to kind of inch or so foam yeah. so that's really the that's what it is it's just that you know you look at that physically you get a feeling for what that is you know the meeting of that you know, and the holding up you know and that pretty much sums up what a lot of it's about. You know, the, 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 it's quite raw. It's quite, um, you know, you feel the pressure of things on you. And uh, you don't have somebody to snuggle up to or somebody who's particularly come there to be with you. You know, you've got people who've come there to be, to do practice, to meditate. They haven't come there to be particularly with you, with you personally. They're not, you know, so you don't have that. You don't have the television. You don't have nights out. You don't have um, things you can you can go off into. Instead, you've got to keep meeting. And it, you know, people can make it's kind of kind of romantic thing about the love of solitude and silence and the serenity and tranquility of the holy life. Probably those people who've never lived it <laughs> would not get that idea about it. It's not tranquil. And it's not still. It's intense. <laughs> And I think I was kind of amazed. I think the most admirable feature I found living in Ajahn Samadhi was somebody could actually laugh for 40 years, <laughs> keep laughing a little. Which I thought was remarkable, his ability to just enjoy, you know, which had seen a real sign of, of, a, of a, an attainment, you know, that you could actually come through pretty, pretty stern and harsh stuff to, to, get that sense of lightness and openness that was the thing that always attracted me to him from the very beginning this was a man who's actually still able to stay kind of good humoured cheerful playful you know with, with this in a situation that's quite pressurised <clears throat> so it's like taking away supports because the aim the final aim is to, to what's called the unsupported Consciousness that doesn't need supports. Now, 
you look at this kind of zoom into that particular phrase, it means you know, we can recognize that consciousness is normally supported by, that is, uh, you know, the, 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 the awareness gravitates or supported by sounds or sights. We hear something, we, we think something, we touch something, you know, so the consciousness, if you could say, leans on that particular sight, sound or sight, isn't it? or memory or thought or physical sensation. And in fact, it's rather like a kind of a, a cripple because it doesn't just lean on anything pleasant. It leans because it has to, not because it particularly even enjoys them, because it can't can't stand up on its own. So it leans on unpleasant things as well. So you can find your, your mental consciousness keeps leaning on some grudge or some irritating thing that happened years ago, and it's still leaning on it. It's still taking that as a support. It's still resting on it, it's still holding it, even though it's painful. It's like a person with a broken leg, you know, and they, they lean upon a, a, a kind of, a, 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 they've got, they lean on something, they lean upon a, you know, something that's really unpleasant, because they just can't stand up. This is the, the which is called the ordinary consciousness of the human being. And it leans on uh, name and form. Form is any particular object, Sight, sound, touch, even thought. In particular, it means it's very cryptic, but it means any particular thing that you can perceive through the senses, even the internal sense. You know, it leans on it, and it leans on it by this process called naming, which again is is quite cryptic. Means the particular perception of agreeable or disagreeable, uh, a feeling pleasant, painful, and that. That is the bit, that's the contact impression that we get as we, as we lean on something. And the mind takes that and it it's, takes that in, takes that pleasure, that displeasure, that should be that thing, makes a self out of it. You know, in other words, where we start, start to feel, find ourselves as feeling I am, you know, in the, with the, I am the mind state that arises as my mind leans upon uh, a disagreeable perception. So, you know, we, we see people doing things we don't in, like them doing or we disapprove of. That sense of disapproval comes up, find myself feeling crabby or disapproving or better than somebody else. And they shouldn't be this way. And I start to become this. You know, I disapprove of this, so therefore I become kind of, you know, upright and judgmental. Uh, or, you know, and, uh, <coughs> You know, you can start to, out of this, out of this leaning on the sense of what we become something. <clears throat> we become this, this judgmental person or irritated person or victimized person or pressurized person. You know, things aren't going, you know, I've got so much to do, things aren't going my way and I feel a pressurized person who's not getting what they need, what they support. That, so that comes out of this process of leaning on or taking on or feeding on disagree, the disagreeable. Or dis- feed on the agreeable, I become wonderful, happy, clear, confident, you know, so forth. I become that. And I'd rather like being like that. Yeah. So naturally, I, because of that, I want to make sure things go the way I want them to. Therefore, I can keep feeling like I'm a good confident, happy person. 
So if I get rid of all the disagreeable impressions and only have agreeable impressions, then I can lean on those and feel like I'm in good shape. If only the world would cooperate. (laughs) But, uh, you know, if only the disagreeable, the annoying, the frustrating, the disappointing, the crazy, the disrespectful, the unpleasant wouldn't keep happening. And if it's ha- so I don't want that to happen because I feel perplexed, I feel confronted, I feel disappointed, and that's what I become. But I don't want to feel, I don't want to be there. I want to be, feel like I'm in the right place, good situation, I'm on top of things, and everything's going well, and I'm in the right team. You know, Buddhist, Buddhist, Buddhist wanderers. <clears throat> so when you get like that you know, we'll get rid of all the annoying, stupid confusing, irritating, frustrating things well, some of those things are called people in fact most of those things are called people <laughs> so we just get rid of all these stupid, frustrating irritating, disappointing people then I'd be alright but actually I want some people to come and feed me so they could just come feed me and then go away before they disappoint me <laughs> That'd be all right. <laughs> I could manage that. <laughs> and the one thing you know, people who aren't going to feed you is you are the monks because they don't cook food. <laughs> so you can find, you know, trying to get a, what do the monk, what do your fellow monks do? Well, he's all right, I guess. <laughs> but then living living with each other, we find that you know our, our own. Problems, our difficulties, our weak spots, and what we put up with when we sit here day in, day out, and how that pressurizes us, that becomes apparent. And then we have, you know, he's not so cheerful, he's a bit sullen, he gets irritated, he, do, he turns up late, he doesn't follow the procedures, yeah, you know, letting us down. Well, let's ditch him, ditch him, you know, kind of thing. I don't want to be with a team of weaklings. So this is so this is why it makes the Sangha life quite intense because it's actually working against this, the sense of really trying to generate, look at that in ourselves, and say, no, people aren't here to be the way I want them to be. You know, if they can keep the basic stuff, you know, the protocols, the basic precepts, yada yada yada, four requisites, you know, then then you just keep kind of generating this letting go and that's what's so useful about it because eventually you know you stop generating these impressions of agree disagree approve disapprove you think what you know um great guy basket case you know or somewhere in the middle it's just you know just good luck whatever where is good luck with that and we're not have to even sort each other out, but uh, just generating that space is considered one of the most beneficial things that we, way we can support and help each other, because we're not taking each other as supports in that way. We're not leaning on the impressions that we create about each other. You want to actually recognise those and get, is this skillful? Is it useful? And we, is a way I can, you know 
release that. And it's a great practice because uh, we're actually doing something that's much more than just a bit of social um, uh, niceness. We're actually doing something very fundamental in tackling the way the mind operates. To not take things, perceptions, impressions as a support. Because if you do, then you end up leaning on some pretty hot stuff. Leaning on some pretty shaky sticks, putting it, resting it, sitting down on some pretty hot stuff. You know, it won't won't give you. You know, so you want to train to to be to meet to be open to release to let it pass. So the beauty of it is, through practice in Dhamma, you can find actually a moment at a time you can do that. When you think I've got to be with this for the next year, think oh no. I can't, I can't, I can't, no way. Another day, oh no, not a whole day, I can't do a day of this. Can you do a moment? Yeah, okay, great. Do another moment. Yeah, that's it. That's it, that's it. And if you do that repeatedly, the mind starts to learn something. You know, you can't do it intellectually. The reflexes start to kind of pull back into... Real, like, micro, let's just a moment at a time, you know. Like when you're sitting meditating and you've got this difficult pain, can you manage a moment? You know, you've got this, this kind of, you know, and just recognising that you start to see you've got some inner refuge of, of emptying, ability to not keep, you know, winding yourself up by feeling trapped. You can bear a moment, you can let go of that impression for a moment, you can not be reacting to that for a moment you keep doing that and eventually you get better at it you know of course not everybody makes it you know so these monasteries uh, certainly everywhere monasteries people blow up people um, run away people go potty people kill themselves you know occasionally you get suicides people have just got you know, too close to the edge, too quick, couldn't, didn't do it, couldn't make it. So this is grim realities. This is not kind of a yeah, studying an interesting doctrine <laughs> or getting a bit of stress reduction. This is really uh, tackling some fundamental stuff and not everybody makes it. Yeah. So to, for that unsupported to be able to, you know, stop generate for the mind to stop generating these impressions, uh, and this isn't you, you, you know, you actually got to work and be worked at, have stuff work on you until you keep kind of letting go, letting go, letting go. You know, this is why one of the fundamental teachings of the Ajahn Chah monasteries is always just. Patience, patient endurance. Can you bear it another, another hour, another day, another moment? You know, just that. And, uh, you know, and trying to build up this, what's called fundamental barami, or virtue or strength. Virtue sounds a bit refined. It's just the basic strength of patience and energy and effort and kindness. You know, these salient virtues. Kindness, that ability to generate a space of non, 
conflict of non-aversion. Equanimity, the ability to, to, to be present with, without, with the ups and downs without making more of them. This tremendous kind of re- pressure release of equanimity. We don't add more emotional fuel to the fire for up or for down. You just, you know, and these are, these are vast, uh, strengths and resources that we are called upon. And you're in this situation when really this is what you've got to do. Because if we don't, then it, it gets very, very difficult. And so, so these, these, this is the kind of, uh, uh, logic of these of the, of the gone forth life and community life you know, it is a place where it more or less starts to you meet your stuff and you've got to really find this way of development you know, otherwise it becomes very difficult <coughs> so towards the unsupported the unsupported consciousness. Now, what's so good about that? Well, as I said, if when your mind doesn't rest upon or feed upon the pleasant or the unpleasant or the neutral, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's difficult to conceive of, isn't it? But how we can be with a sound without making something out of it. Be with the sounds of music or traffic without the mind kind of, you can feel it sometimes gets hold of that sound and it fights it so stop it stop it it kind of gets its teeth into that sound what's the get out of my way you know or it gets a lovely sound and it kind of hold, wants to hold onto that sound and squeeze it and play with it and suck it and get it in you know what if the mind just that reaching out and holding that's what we're talking about you know or a taste you know uh, you see some pleasant food and your mind kind of reaches out it's kind of luscious, chocolatey, sweet, creamy goo that it wants to just just die into, absorb into completely. <laughs> yeah. and the kind of all the fantasies the mind can bring up, uh, the things you just love to... to uh, Gorge on sweets or sugar or sex or whatever, you know, something you can just really, your mind just wants to kind of completely drown itself in that. And this is the extreme. But of course, when you, when you can get little bits of these things, it tends to not do that because you can have a little snack or a little, you know, some entertainment. So it, it doesn't have that same fever to it. But when you start to develop renunciation, you can feel this feverish quality of the mind wanting to to bury itself into something you know something to do you know you go on retreats and you see people you know reading cornflake packets you know, sitting around the breakfast table noble silence 10 day retreat first day and looking around second day people are kind of third day every in the breakfast people are reading the backs of cornflake packets you know something to you know, get the mind onto, you know, riboflavin, niacin. I've done it myself. Thiamine, <laughs> special offers. You know, oh, that was interesting. It got me through five minutes. <laughs> now let's look at the ketchup bottle. <laughs> <laughs> you 
<laughs> that's what happens when you start to kind of let go of some of the supports. You can see just how how hungry the mind is. There's something to get into, you know. <clears throat> or you sit there, and in the evening you kind of start planning. I do this, I do that, building something. Build this, but don't knock that down. Really. Five of those things. I'm not a great builder, so it isn't my particular fantasy, but. Uh, I can still build things better. I can still think beautiful one of things in my mind. I can't stick a nail in the wall. <laughs> create things in my mind. Or various, you know, projects and things. I get into it, you know. And uh, it's like also you realise, well, yeah, you know. You've got to be kind of how to cultivate with that. Because it's like you've got like a mind, like a hungry dog. And it just can't, you just can't throttle it. You know, you've got to wean it off. Say, okay, have a little bit, you know. Or find something a little bit, don't keep sticking it in the garbage pail. At least go and eat some decent food, you know. So study something or, you know, do something skillful, you know. Turn it towards skillful use. And, uh, you know. So we start to see that the need for these supports, conventional supports, relative supports, just to help, you know, the impact of renunciation. And so it's a real kind of human uh, warmth and and, and pragmatism that can arise in, in these, in monasteries actually. And people really, you know, we know how, what we should be. You know, we should all be needing nothing, but actually, we've got to work towards that. So, uh, you know, and you find that people are, uh, are prepared to, you know, help each other. It's a very lovely quality, you know. Playing with each other, you know. And certainly in Thailand, if you're a lot of the most just kind of play, uh, innocent enough things, just kind of sit around, chat, joke, and play. Something to, to uh, kind of take some of the rawness away. Because um, it's a pragmatic thing, it's a human thing. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, because I, I mean, everyone, when I was went forth, everyone I went forth with disrobed within weeks they didn't, not many people could make it because it was a pretty bleak scenario we just sat in a hut with nobody to talk to, day in, day out 24 hours 7, there was no meetings, we didn't eat together, we didn't go to any chanting we were allowed to go on arms round in silence and the rest of the day we just sat in our huts looking at the wall on our own we weren't even supposed to talk to each other. There was no tea. Uh, a little bowl of food was brought round, so you never got out to the meeting hall. You never saw anybody. All you saw was the wall and your mind hitting it. <laughs> so not many people lasted that that uh, uh, thing. So everybody left. The uh, teacher didn't last too long either. So... He, he ended up leaving and then killed himself in the end. So, you know, 
looking around for the support, you think, well, not, not a lot from these guys, you know. <laughs> and that uh, so I did, it was very, I think it was a pretty unskillful um, setup actually. It was a good idea, but it was pretty unskillful because it didn't have enough of the kind of human pragmatic element to it. And so when I came to England, it was delightful to see the monks were living together. And uh, three or four monks with Ajahn Sumedho, and they were, you know, they joked, chatted, had tea, you know, had the meal together, went for walks. And I thought this was great, but they were actually having a miserable time. But their miserable time was my good time, compared with what I'd been. <laughs> At least they weren't about to kill themselves. <laughs> So it was, it was up as far as I could see. <laughs> and they'd had some very difficult times because um, they, they, Ajahn Sumedha had actually been sent there. He was kind of provisionally willing to be there. The other two monks who were there hadn't even inclined to go. They'd been in America and due to go back to Thailand. And they just got a message saying, oh, forget Thailand, go and live in England instead. So then they got rerouted to England. Neither of them had been to England before. And they, they were just went out to, of Thailand. There were two, two or three buses, and they'd just <coughs> gone out to see their families, respective families in North America. And they just got this message, oh, well, forget Thailand, go to, back, go to England instead. And you know, suddenly, so they were in London, and they've been living out in this uh, large, spacious forest monastery in northeast Thailand, where a lot of monks, a lot of, you know, culture, things you could do, bindabads, tudongs, uh, making robes, uh, you know, there's a kind of monastic culture you could live in that gave you some sense of belonging to something, and you could feel this kind of a human element to it, and then they were just poked into this townhouse, in London, in the winter time, it's grey and cold, and uh, and they had these what are called cells to live in. They weren't cooties; they were cells, and literally they were cells. You couldn't, you could stand up in them, and you could lie down in them. They were more like cupboards. Um, you know, once you you lay down and you like something about the slightly wide, just about six foot, six or seven foot wide. And on one, well, long and about four foot wide, so you could you could lie down, you could stand up, and one step you're at the door, <laughs> which was like a sliding door, and you open it up. So there was nothing you could do in there apart from sit there. And it had been these these cells had been built um, a few years previously for people who like to do intensive vipassana retreats. They called it. They decided pre- that, that they didn't really want a monastery anymore. They just wanted a place where people could sit for a weekend in one of these cells and uh, do this intensive med- vipassana. But they weren't going to live in it. They're just going to do a weekend of being intensely insightful and then go home again, which you could probably manage for a weekend. But living in one of these things, living in a shoebox, and uh, outside the door it was just... Uh, back garden in Hampstead, London. Very small, pokey little townhouse. Buses grinding up and down the hill. A pub next door with drunks fighting on the street in the evening. And uh, 
So they they went downhill. <laughs> they hit the pits. And uh, Ajahn Sumedho would get them up in the three o'clock in the morning. Say, okay, you guys get up and run. And he'd have them running up and down the uh, the back garden. So they just wouldn't sit there in a depressed state, feeling feeling sorry for themselves. He'd get up and he'd shout at them, you know, get up, run up and down. They'd just rush up and down this, uh, this uh, garden, back garden till they get in a sweat and then jump into a cold shower. He said, okay, you know, get some energy going. And so you do this every morning to kind of uh, get out of this feeling of gloomy self-pity and depression, which they get into. So, you know, it was just, just using this energy faculty to give support to the mind and bringing up the energy faculty. I found that helpful for myself at work dealing with depression when things got very glum and you feel, you know, minds just moaning and whinging all the time, just to kind of get up and do something vigorous. Like uh, the Amrawadi was always pretty cold and bleak. In the early days, they didn't have any heating. So, you know, you kind of stick your nose outside your sleeping bag at half past three and it's kind of icicles forming. Oh God, not another day of this. And then just jump up, rush out, and there was a there was a little bit of water in a in a shower, it's a cold shower, and it was like about you know manage about 15 seconds of this, and then run, you know go around the field, jog around the field just to kind of get going on a day. So rather than let the mind go, oh, I'm fed up, I'm cold, I didn't want to do this. Well, it's about enlightenment anyway, nibbana, you know, people. Uh, things like that. <laughs> so just using energy as a support to lever the mind away from its habitual impressions. And it was like that in, the, in, the, in those early days. You know, it was everywhere it was like that. It was at um, Chithurst Monastery was like that because the only places we ever got were, were ruins because that, that was the only, you know, we only got derelict buildings. Nobody gave us kind of nicely wonderful central heated palaces to live in. They gave us, you know, living on arms. So you basically get uh, old derelict buildings to live in with, uh, you know, so Chithurst was like that. <coughs> so I did about three or four years here. And then just as we, just as we got some electricity and some floorboards and started to fix the roof, then at five of us, I went off to the monastery in Northumberland, so five wasas, which isn't very much really, teach, start teaching meditation retreats and start a monastery up in Northumberland. The monastery in Northumberland was also derelict. There was no heat. Um, there was, was electric light bulbs, uh, which were after two days you lost interest in electric light bulbs as a source of, of interest. <laughs> And uh, there was, uh, you know, so it was cold, damp place, just building work. And uh, we just used to use the work as a way of, of generating energy to come out of this, of the mind hanging on to the difficulties and, and being miserable. So you just use energy as a, as a support 
to lever the mind away from its habitual leanings on sights and sounds and touches. We had a stove up there, <coughs> but it wasn't it wasn't uh, plumbed in, so you couldn't fire it up. So this big, impressive wood burning stove, but you couldn't burn anything in it. So we'd we'd sit around this stove in the evening, go, oh, it's really toasty, isn't it? Rubbing our hands, oh, it really is. Yeah, throw some more wood on it, you know. Sit around imagining it was it was a stove. <laughs> so you know this this uh, you know this is not about developing refined samadhi or anything like that. It's just starting to use <clears throat> to see what you need to do. And uh, there's always a, a beautiful thing when we come down to that kind of level of it is that everybody knows they've just got to, uh, we'll need each other to support each other. You know, basic human way. Nobody's, it's not about lecturing, it's just about being uh, friendly and, and pragmatic. You know. <clears throat> you know. Because you start to, and the, the uh, uh, beauty of it is, and what we in fact, should always remember as gone forth people, that we're all, you know, if, it's pra- if we're doing the practice, we're generally coming up against some difficult stuff in ourselves, whatever we look like from the outside, and uh, this isn't the time to be sniping or um, fault-finding, but uh, kind of recognising this sense of everybody's going through something, um, you know, you look for, bear that in mind, the mind of compassion, bear that in mind. You know, obviously, we all are fallible, make mistakes, do stupid things and so forth, but you keep looking towards the person is keeping the precepts, they are, have made a commitment, they are, you know, putting themselves on the line, um, you know, and then that sense of, compassion for the struggles and the suffering that people go through is a more helpful way of supportive perception to lever the mind away from its habitual supports this is where you use a relative support like a perception uh, an action uh, an energy in order to lever the mind away from its habitual supports and this is basically the 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 system the Buddha laid down in various ways you use uh, because the mind just can't be unsupported you say well instead of going to your habitual supports of craving and aversion and self-pity and complaining and so forth uh, then apply things like, like energy uh, apply things like kindness apply things like just um, work you know uh, being with each other Pragmatically helping each other out, um, you apply that as a, or you know, as as a means to to knock out the other support. And of course, meditation itself is at first is that that is what meditation is at first. The first stages are just coming to the the breathing or the body or the feelings in the body, just getting something that your mind can 
bond itself to instead of bonding itself to its troubles and sorrows. So it's always that's the the, the fundamental um, you know beginning practice that we we start to undertake. And you want to find a meditation object that's suitable that you that will do that for you. So your meditation object doesn't become some Olympic standard that's always a strain, but it becomes more like a friend that's that's available that you know you can go to and get some support from. You know, you look sort of internally for that and you look externally for that. <clears throat> so this is uh, our way we cultivate, uh, looking around like that, this particular culture. And uh, it's both internal and external. Yeah. So internally working with our own minds, externally working with situations around us in order to to bring around uh, uh, a relief, uh, lift, uh, letting go of these habitual um, activities and and karmic perceptions that arise in the mind, <clears throat> and it's a it can be produce a very beautiful culture. One of the things that I've always found uh, uh, most uh, inspiring in monasteries is when you get. Um, you know, this, this, one of the features of them is generally there's some activity everybody does together. You know, it could be here we do log throwing. The men do anyway. We kind of chuck logs around. We have a forest work month. And generally these are some of the happiest times because they're particularly so pleasant, but there's a sense of everybody together. You realize how important that perception is uh, uh, on a very instinctive level. You know, we are fundamentally flock creatures, whether we, whatever we aspire to be, we're built to be creatures who experience relationship. We're born from another person. We have mother, father. We form groups. We like friends, you know. We form clubs and groups. And it's very, very fundamental. <clears throat> In monasteries, you form groups really around, not around personalities, but around aspirations and activities so the sort of things that can be most useful is when we all come and sit together when we have these regular meditations there's somehow just the sense of other bodies sitting there in the same room at the same time everybody making that commitment you know probably a good percentage of us at any given time would sooner be lying in bed <laughs> rather than get up with the, before the before dawn but we get up because we feel that's my that's my that's my part that's my piece of what I do to support others and to be show I'm you know in I'm putting my fit into the pot the support pot I'm putting myself there uh, yeah. so we do that that group activity and there's no it's not a personality thing we don't talk to each other we're not trying to understand each other we just place ourselves in the same place in the same activity. <clears throat> or you have a group work project, you know, we have these garden days and forest days or forest work months or dumb hall cleanups or kitchen cleanups. Everybody starts getting in there and splashing and doing things. And some of these are some of the most um, helpful um, experiences because they are in some ways very bonded but also impersonal, you know, because you, it doesn't really matter who you are. You have to be very good at it. 
You just anybody can come along and just participate. And it's particularly there's no questions about how good you are, how moral you are, how enlightened you are, how old you are, how young you are, how high, how low in the hierarchy. You're just dropping all that and just being a human being, working together. And it's it's uh, it's you know you could say it's almost play rather than work because it's that sense in which the almost as if the real aim of the project is just to have this experience of being together on a on a kind of non-personal level and it <clears throat> it's very useful because you you start to start to change your perceptions of how you regard people and so by and large you know instead of you know, what we tend to focus on in, in inspiring people or whatever is this particular quality. This is his humor. This is his persistence. This is her courage. This is, you know, her resilience. This is his wisdom. This is his generosity. This is her faith. You know, you focus on those features. Those features are things that those faculties, those those qualities, those indrias, those supports, those internal supports, we can say, that's what it's like in her. Oh yeah, I have one of those. So it's you 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 start to focus on things that bring you together, things you have in common. You know, maybe I'm not as wise as you, but I do have that that faculty. Maybe I'm not as intelligent as you on this aspect, but I do have that faculty uh, in different areas. So we we start to see past the person package into these factors and elements. And that brings us together. Because you see, oh, there's the, there's the, uh, the, the, uh, the faith, or there's the persistence, or there's the generosity, or even there's the despair. Yes, I too have that. You know, that too is the case for me. So then the person sort of disappears and what stands out are the faculties and the factors. And if you look at that, you realize that when you start to create people, that sets you apart. I start to create people, I think, I wonder what she thinks of me. Am I all right? I haven't, is she doing okay? What do they think about you, you can't, Is he better, worse, the same? What do they think about me? What do I think about them? Am I going all right? Is this worry, agitation, loss? Oh, what about, you know? Myself, Ajahn Samadhi, I've known him now since 1976. Right? You know, so I can think, well, Ajahn Samadhi, person I've known most in my life. More than my brother, more than my father. You know, long, long, long more than that. You know, so a sense leaving, going away. I don't feel the, the sense of any loss. Because in some ways, you know, there's something Ajahn Samadhi that I will never know or understand or be with. Absolutely impossible. There's something that's right here for me, you know, that's always with me about him. And once we kind of put away the packet, you know, that, that personality packet, and you see the faculties, this is what brings us together. This is where we find our sense of resonance and empathy. <clears throat> even with the 
you know, the, the disagreeable faculties like, oh, this is her anger. Yeah, I know what it feels like. Or this is her, his, his, uh, his disappointment, whatever it is. You, know? you start to contemplate things that way. So the mind does not take the personality, the person as a support. And this is an important leverage as well. We don't take the person as a support externally, then we similarly we don't take this person ourselves as a support <laughs> or trying to make it a support. Yeah? Rather than trying to make yourself or myself into some totally okay, sorted out person who's got all the answers, totally on, on the ball, you know, all the time, it isn't going to happen. <laughs> I'm not going to be an enlightened person. That's as far as I can make out. <laughs> you know, after a while you begin to get the point. I'm not going to be an enlightened person. <laughs> but there can be a release from that, taking that as a support, or trying to find that as a support. Trying to find an enlightened teacher who will be a support. I want somebody to be totally enlightened, what I consider enlightened all the time. We won't be, say, politically incorrect things. You know, I really feel disappointed when my Dhamma teacher says things that are embarrassingly in politically incorrect. Oh, God. You know, it's so 1950s, you know. Another clangor. <laughs> So, the, but the, you know, you don't want to take that. That's not. That's just that. That's just karma. <clears throat> and you don't want to kind of lean on it, or or, or trying to f- shape something up like that to lean on. But then we can see these parameters, these, these qualities of strength and persistence and effort and courage and generosity and kindness. You want to be supported by anything. Be supported by those. Because when you see them in others, you see them in yourself, then you start to release from the thought processes, from the identification processes, from the future, from the past, from the what I should be and could be and he is and why is he and why are they like that and what about her, all that kind of stuff. And the mind begins to become much more... uh, Unified. And in the places where it used to go, there's a hole. There's a kind of nothing it's not there. It's like you your mind kind of senses something isn't there. And that what it isn't there was kind of comfortable or familiar, like you know, like a basket that a dog would lie down in, or something you kind of familiar, slightly worn, a manky, warm thing that you go to, and it's not there anymore. And instead, there's this sort of openness. Where normally one would go and huddle and cling and hold on and bury and fabricate, it's not there. And yet, instead, there's this openness, emptiness. 
non-creating. And it's not no object. So, you know, I just point that out and uh, attend to it, notice that, attend to it, point it out, offer it as a something to look at, bear in mind. This is why we go through this process, in my mind, and this is very much why. And to me, it's uh, worth it to go through this process of having things removed, taken away, meeting things, having to being more or less forced to generate inner strength so that there's that emptiness, that openness, that non-clinging. So this is our, this is uh, wind up or finish off rather for the this evening, and uh, just to express my um, appreciation and uh, encouragement for all the community who've practiced here, because it actually is uh, sometimes more difficult in these countries than it is in uh, in an Asian culture where it's a lot more familiar and a lot more opportunities. This is quite um, quite intense, and uh, so just to have, of you know we don't just stay together for three months. We're often together for like ten months of the year, nine ten months of the year. So um, you know, I want to 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 just come through this is no no small undertaking, and uh, so I offer my uh, respect and encouragement to everyone, and also for all you. Good people who come for the knees down to hit the floor, week in, week out. Hold your backs up, listen to your minds, going round in circles uh, with great faith and uh, and that 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 uh, support that you give us just by coming here, you know, showing it's worthwhile, it's meaningful, and I hope it long continues to be so.